if you want to blow up your communication efforts and utterly ruin your response right out of the gate, the best thing you can do is to create mixed messages from sources who are supposed to be on the same team. Welcome to Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from dance to cybersecurity to find out what lies behind the passion for their work, the inspiration for their ideas, and the motivation for their creativity. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. Tom Hipper is an assistant professor in the Environmental and Occupational Health Department at Drexel University's Dornsife School of Public Health. Tom is trained in crisis and emergency risk communication. His interest lies in developing effective messaging for the general public during all phases of disasters. All right, so Tom Hipper, welcome to the 10,000 Hours. Thanks, Maurice. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited about um, talking to you about your history um, and specifically about your professional focus as it I think it has um, particular resonance uh, to the world that we live in today. But why don't we start here? Why don't you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what kind of kid you were? <laughs> sure, I'd be happy to do that. So I am I am a New Yorker at heart. Uh, my the whole hipper crew is from one borough or another. So originally from the New York area. And uh, I, my parents went to, took a random vacation down to Florida um, when I was about two years old and stumbled across a little town called Melbourne Beach. And they were walking along the beach one morning and basically said to themselves, why the hell do we still live in New York when we could be down here? And so uh, we we packed up shop and I spent about a, a decade uh, down in Florida growing up. And then the, the pull to come back with family eventually brought me back up to the New York, New Jersey area. And uh, obviously in Philadelphia now and, and really have kind of bounced around the Northeast most of my life. Uh, and, did, you, uh, did you have any kind of like real interest or hobbies or the kinds of things that really pulled you? Were you bookish or athletic? I actually, I'm going to regret telling this story, but um, <laughs> long story short, uh, my grandfather, I was always an out, very outgoing kid. My grandfather, who was also down in Florida at the time, got wind of uh, a group called Manhattan Model Search, who was coming to Florida to, to find the next, the next big thing as it were. And I, my, so he insisted that, uh, my parents take my sister and I to this, this Manhattan model search casting event. And I think just my dad felt it was the path of least resistance to just go along with this and say, okay, sure, we'll give it a try. And so my sister and I went and and long story short, I, I apparently passed the initial test and was next invited to, uh, the the Swan Hotel in Orlando a few months later, and um, they brought a bunch of talent agents down from New York and California, and I, through a, a series of, of conversations, I ended up um, meeting an agent, a, a talent agent down there, and before I know it, within a couple of months, I was 
I was back up in New York actually going on auditions for commercials and ended up booking a, a, a few spots. Um, you you uh, may have seen me on, on really quite terrible quality Pizza Hut commercials or Captain Crunch <laughs> commercials. Um, and needless to say, <laughs> I... I, I think I'm a good athlete. I think I'm a, a, certainly a, a, a bookworm. I don't think I'm that great an actor. I think I had the, the, the freckles and the curly hair that was, you know, good timing when I was in that 11 to, to 15 range. I, I, was, I was what they were looking for. And then once actual acting ability was uh, required to continue booking work, kind of realize that you know maybe maybe don't quit the day job and and maybe this uh, academic thing is is probably the area i should stick to so um so it, that it, actually <laughs> yeah you didn't I see that, that one coming i bet i totally didn't see yeah. your career um hawking captain crunch now, now you have to now you have to you have to adapt that question so that it's you know oh, were you in sports books or, or commercials Right. Yeah. Or did you yeah. spend time on the international <laughs> modeling circuit? Um, wow, Tom, that's I'm totally thrown off by that story, by the way. That's great. I mean, it's, it's sort of an interesting jump off because, I mean, you were a teenager and yeah. it, it's sort of that crucial time when a person has to decide what do they want to do professionally, even though you really don't have a clear understanding of what the professional world is about. Sure. Um, and so how'd you make your college decision? And when you made it, what were your intentions? I came in, uh, I went to the college of New Jersey for my undergraduate work and they, they, they call it open option. That's effectively, uh, it's a nice way of saying you have no idea what the hell you want to do with your life. And so you don't right. have can't make yet. up my mind. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, and they allow you to, to, to stay in that state of uncertainty for about two years. And I'm pretty sure I eked out as much of that as I possibly could. Um, but toward the end of my, my second year, uh, I took a class with, uh, with a professor of the name of John Pollock there. And as, as my, my peers eventually joked by the time I graduated, I, I had, by the end, I had effectively majored in, in Pollock. Uh, he, he was a communication <laughs> professor there and, um, he, he was very interested in this field of health communication. And so I took a couple of courses with him, um, a, a social marketing course, um, a, a research methods course. And I think, you know, it was a combination of really feeling like, wow, this, this, is, an, this is an important area, one that I can do some good and make an impact. Um, but also, I, I think what was so great about what made him such a great professor and advisor, I think at that stage for me was that, you know, he treated us like colleagues and, you know, we were taking fairly advanced methods courses as undergraduates. And before I knew it, um, I was presenting at national and international conferences. I was, I was presenting, uh, you know, research that I had conducted as an undergrad at, at these these big conferences and and you know networking with leaders in the field and other graduate students who were you know further down the path already, and so I think I think there was there was this appeal in terms of both the impact that I could eventually had if I stayed on this path and also 
you know, just getting getting excited about feeling like, wow, I'm I'm I, I almost feel like I'm ahead of the curve here, and I'm putting myself in a good position to hit the ground running if I go the graduate school route, which is ultimately what I ended up doing. I think nothing can be more affirming as an undergraduate student than doing your own research and presenting it in front of professionals in the field. Um, talk a little bit more about the independent research that you did as an undergrad. What were you focused on? A lot of the, the, the primary focus of this research um, was based on this community structure approach um, that, that uh, my professor uh, had uh, come, you know, he, this was a, an approach that he developed where we basically, um, we looked at how, you know, normally you look at this notion of, of how mass media and news coverage of certain issues, in, in our case, we, we tended to focus on health issues. You look at how um, newspapers can frame an issue and how, depending on how that issue is framed for a given audience, that might impact uh, how that audience sees an issue. And, and obviously, depending on the region of, of the country or perhaps the, the actual country, if you're looking at this on an international scale, the way those issues are framed um, are, are often very different and, and may, again, impact how the audience sees an issue. Uh, this, this approach actually kind of flips that and, and looks at whether the demographics of a specific area um, might, in turn, impact how newspapers and uh, newspaper coverage of important issues are framed. So kind of flipping hmm. that issue on its head. And, and looking at, you know, whether or not um, demographics and beliefs and attitudes in certain areas uh, might be playing a role in how things are being covered in those spaces. And, you know, looking at that ac across wow. a, a wide range of, of uh, health and even in some cases uh, political issues. So, so much of the work that you just described seems so prescient, like – like almost driven for the place that the world is today, that we find ourselves both as a country and maybe even as a globe. Um, I'm wondering if we can take a step back and maybe talk about health communications, what it is, what it seeks to do, what questions it asks, and where it fits in the public health sort of ecosystem. Yeah, sure. So in a nutshell, um, the, the field is designed to convey information about health, um, to help people, to encourage people to take steps in their lives to, to be healthier and, you know, mm -hmm. protect their health, live healthier lives. Um, so it's, it's not just the provision of information. That's a part of it, right? We want to raise awareness and knowledge and understanding, but we also ideally want to shift attitudes and beliefs and social norms and ultimately change health behaviors. Getting people to change their behaviors, no less to protect their health, is a really challenging thing to do. We are the global we. We are a, a stubborn, you know, we're stubborn. Mm. We don't mm. like to uh, we don't like to change and we don't like to be lectured at. Um, and, you know, you think about some of the kind of tried and true health communication areas, um, helping people quit smoking 
or eat healthier or exercise more. And you can, you can start to imagine how people who smoke or people who are having trouble exercising or eating healthy on a consistent basis, they don't love to hear from experts on why what they're doing is unhealthy or how it could be better. They're not exactly beating down the door to, to hear from health communication researchers about any of these things. And so that, you know, so this, this challenge of making this information compelling and um, packaging it in a way that it actually moves the needle a bit and, and helps people was, was exciting to me. It was a kind of a, embrace that challenge. And, and it, it, as soon as I realized that, you know, it, this, is, this takes baby steps, you're not going to just magically come up with the perfect message and change people's behaviors overnight. Hmm. Um, you know, as soon as I kind of internalized that, it, it allowed me to get excited about the, the potential for this space. So let's talk about the um, uh, the emergency space. I mean, I have so many questions. We're so we're recording this podcast in the middle of a global pandemic, a once in a lifetime global pandemic, and I'm assuming that an expert like you has been sitting back and taking in all of the messages and messaging that has gone out both locally and by the state level and at the national level. And yeah. so I wonder if you could critique on both sides of the scale, um, like things that you have heard that seem really efficacious and things that we've gotten wrong and that hopefully we learn from moving forward. Sure. So how long do we have for this podcast? Is it eight hours? Yeah, yeah. It's the extended <laughs> edition, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, so, <laughs> so unfortunately, the, you're right, I have been, for better or worse, I've been paying very close attention to how we have been communicating around the, the pandemic. And unfortunately, as I'm, I'm sure you won't be surprised to hear, um, far more in the way of, of critiquing to do here than, um, you know, then not to say there aren't some positives and, and we can certainly touch on those today too, but it is very frustrating to not just, you know, I think it's been a frustrating experience just as a, you know, a citizen, a mm. human being going through this process, but certainly as a risk communication person, knowing the, the playbook that exists, uh, seeing those rules just not just broken at times, but just completely smashed. Um, it has been really, really difficult. Uh, I think from a risk communication standpoint, the, there's a couple of things that really jump out to me as problematic. The, the mm -hmm. first happened almost immediately. Um, there were signs to me that we were, uh, we were on the wrong path very early and, and, I recall January, very early January of, of 2020, I was at the gym and I was listening to a podcast with uh, Dr. Fauci talking about um, these these concerning cases in China. And, and, you know, we, there was concern that, you know, maybe we were on the cusp of something here, but didn't know all that much just yet. Um, but, uh, you know, already the alarm bells for me are going off. Um, 
And I I say that only to say that, so that's early January. So if you're kind of tuned in and listening, you're, you're starting to pay close attention to what might be coming about. And then you actually reflect on how we, and primarily when I say we, I'm I'm thinking the, the federal government at this point is actually communicating about the issue. And right out of the gate, we got this wrong. The the and you know not to I realize this isn't a political show and you know no. it's, it's it's I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but you can't have this conversation without talking about the abject failure of the Trump administration and their communication efforts around this, breaking almost every rule in that playbook I mentioned earlier. And the first thing that they did was the trap that we often fall into is just downplaying the the threat. Yeah. And and it's and you know if you take a step back it's not always a nefarious goal. When when it's your job to communicate to people in scary times when people are dying and people are really afraid. Human nature is to is is to make them feel better and make them feel less scared. And, and Trump would say things like, well, I just wanted to be a, a cheerleader. And, and, you know, there is, there is something understandable about that. And it's why leaders need to be trained in crisis communication, because it is our innate tendency to want to make people feel better and reassure them. When in fact, our job is to level with them and trust them with bad news and then empower them to do something about it and not withhold information because if we don't, they will panic. Panic is an overblown concept that should never drive our response. It should never be the reason we withhold information. And we did that. And if you, if you kind of look at the amount of time that we wasted in January and all of February and part of March downplaying this, and so what we lost in that window was precious time to, in, to accurately inform the public and to start to brace them for what was to come. Mm-hmm. And that could have set such a different tone for this whole response. We could have used that time to gradually help people understand the potential threat, even if we didn't have all the answers, and we didn't, and that's okay. That's not, a, that's not a requirement for being able to communicate effectively. You never have all the details. But we could have been preparing people for the impact this could have on, on their lives and what they could have been doing to start preparing for major changes, major you know, non-pharmaceutical interventions like school closures or remote work. Um, instead, we downplayed, 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 and then hit people with effectively a nationwide lockdown. The other thing that we completely botched from the outset, if you take it, if you go to CDC and you you get their training that they offer in crisis and emergency risk communication, the first thing they will tell you is if you want to blow up your communication efforts and utterly ruin your response right out of the gate, the best thing you can do is to create mixed messages from sources who are supposed to be on the same team. Because mm. what that does is it it makes it very difficult for the broad public to know who to trust. And then they start to question that and then they start to go elsewhere for their information. And 
I give you, I mean, if COVID-19 is not exhibit A for that, if you look at what leadership and say CDC was trying to do, go back to uh, Dr. Messonnier's press conference in February, where she tried to go by this playbook, right? She, she started to level with us and say that she was concerned and she started to have conversations with her family about what this could mean and how this could impact them. And then what happened? The administration <laughs> effectively started to muzzle CDC from that point on, contradicted mm-hmm. that point and spent months and months and months telling us it was going to go away. Right. And so right at, right out of the gate, you have those those diametrically opposed messages coming from the, the people who are supposed to be telling us consistent information. And, and that unfortunately just, it's, it's set up this tone for polarization and politicizing these issues. I mean, if I never in a million years would have thought that masks, uh, such a simple behavior could become so such a polarizing topic and and that the seeds for that were planted very early on in this response and 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 it's you know even though the administration changed and that has helped in in a lot of ways the damage has been done and and i think one of the one of the takeaways that that i have learned about this field in general is that trust and credibility is our lifeline it is the only thing at the end of the day that really matters if people don't trust you and see you as a credible source of information it really doesn't matter what you say it's not going to do anything and it's easy trust is easy to lose and it's hard to gain and i Mm. you know not to not to paint too pessimistic a picture but to to be completely honest you know obviously still focused on getting through this pandemic, which isn't over, but you know, the, the risk communication person in me worries about the long-term effects of the lack of credibility uh, and the, the mistrust that has, has come about because of these mistakes and how long it's going to take us as a, as a discipline, as a, you know, public health in general to earn that trust back. I wanted to sort of turn our attention away from our current crisis and think about the next big thing that humanity will have to face. I mean, the one thing that we know is true is that something else big will challenge us once we're out of this one. Um, And I'm wondering, so based on all the lessons that we've learned, and if you were crisis communication czar when the next thing happens— what are your first three big moves? Well, uh, I can tell you without question, the, the first thing that needs to stop is the defunding of public health. If you, if you, look, at, if you look at public health budgets the past decade, okay, and re- a reminder, this is in a world where in, it, thanks in part to climate change, we are experiencing disaster level events with more frequency right. and those events are more powerful. Um, so even in that climate, you look at look take a look at public health department budgets the past mm. decade and you will see year after year budget cuts. 
I can I, I can tell you. So I, I'm the associate director at the Center for Public Health Readiness and Communication uh, here at the Dornsife School of Public Health at Drexel, and we we developed years ago. We developed this hazard vulnerability analysis tool, uh, which is a really jargony way of saying it was a it was a quantitative, largely quantitative tool designed to help health departments assess their community's risk for bad things happening hmm. and help help them prioritize which bad things should we be planning for. And we right. looked at all kinds of stuff. The the likelihood that that a, a bad specific disaster scenario could happen in a place like Philadelphia, if it were to happen, even if it wasn't that likely, how bad would it be? And use this tool to, to effectively create a, a rank list of these are the things that we should be prioritizing. And I'll give you a guess. What do you think number one was? What do you think the number one hazard was on that for South- priority scale? For, yeah, yeah for, for, for Southeastern for, Pennsylvania? Southeastern that's, Pennsylvania, Philly, the state of Pennsylvania as a whole. What do you what do you think was the oh, please, that's number a, one? That's e- that's easy. That's a second Eagles Super Bowl win. No. Um <laughs> I'm gonna guess a global health pandemic. Bingo. An infectious disease outbreak. And yeah. and so, you know, so <laughs> not to get derailed here, but that's why like those er- those early talking points of like no one could have imagined this, no one could have seen this coming was it was enough to like I, I'm surprised I have hair left. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, just absolutely infuriating. But the point is, public health knew this. Every, everyone working in this space knew that, you know, this is the kind of event that we've been planning for. And I'll be honest with you, the yeah. kinds of one of the ways that we prepare in this field for bad things is we actually we exercise for them. We create these hypothetical scenarios and get together and test out our various capabilities and how we would respond to it if it actually happened. That's how the, that's how broadly the field of public health preparedness or emergency management prepares for things like this. And I'll be perfectly frank with you that when, when we plan for a pandemic, the scenario itself is often far worse right. than COVID. Right. It's either more more transmissible, more virulent, what have you. The 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 virus itself that that we've utilized in some of these hypothetical situations is is worse than this one. And so you you sort of think about that for a second. And you reflect on the past year and you go, oh my god, what? Well, that's not good. Um, mm. And and so so the point here is that. We have, just as before, just as before with that playbook that I mentioned, we have a lot of expertise around and understanding around what could happen and what needs to be done. And so the, the, the thing that has to happen is we have to stop reacting to these things that we know are coming, that we know are a matter of not if, but when. And right. we have to get back to what public health is all about, prevention. Public health... Mm-hmm. I, I joke that you know my my family loves they they absolutely love me they're proud of me but it's adorable hearing them attempt to describe what I do in public <laughs> health preparedness to other people it's it's hilarious mm. I mean it, it's it's really it's cute but my God it is a terrible description of what I do and the 
the point there is people don't they don't see what public health brings to the table to protect us from so many threats not the least of which would be a global pandemic and so part of what need, part of what we need to be so much better about is selling that vitally important role so that ultimately the funding is there and ultimately when uh, the bad thing does happen and hopefully we are more prepared for it people are more likely to look to us as trusted experts in this to guide them through it so that's that is a major major gap we have to break this cycle because this won't be the last one um it absolutely will not be and every time something like this happens whether it's a a horrible storm it doesn't have to be a disease outbreak for it to have major health implications and so public health is always going to need to play a vital role in these kinds of responses and it's got to be up to the task and i i can only hope that you know uh, going through this awful year together will ultimately lead to it will lead us to to understand we've got to better fund this work so we are more prepared um and we've got to get back to the things we know that work We've got to get on the same page with how to talk about these issues, how to guide people through these kinds of situations, or we see what happens and we see how much worse it makes an already bad situation. Tom, I feel like this conversation has been both uh, profound and an education in what we need to do to be ready for the next. Um, thank you for being on the 10,000 Hours. Thanks so much for, for having me. It was a pleasure. Drexel's 10,000-hour podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Barrick. Drexel's 10,000-hours podcast is powered by Drexel University.